it's on. Okay. Good morning. It's my pleasure and our privilege um, to welcome and introduce to you the Reverend Dr. Daniel Scott. Dan is the moderator of the 146th General Assembly, which is the national gathering and court of our church. So over the last year, he has been serving our national church and representing us to the greater church in Canada and beyond. Uh, Dan is the minister at St. John's uh, Bradford. At Tyndale, he's an associate professor and previously their vice president and academic dean. And at Knox, a Knox connection that some of you know and many of us probably don't, um, in the early 90s, Dan um, led youth and eventually adult ministries at our church as well. And we're really glad to be able to welcome him back this morning and hear God's word through him. So let's pray for him um, together, if you would. God, we are so grateful for Dan. We're grateful for the way that you've used his life and his ministry to serve the church, to serve his congregation, and now to serve our wider church in this way through this year. We thank you that he's able to be with us here this morning, that as other plans shifted, um, new ways of ministry through this year have become apparent. And we pray for us that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to know and understand what it is that you have to say to us individually and us as a community through Dan this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Well, th thank you, Reverend Nick, for that kind introduction, and it is good to be here. I love what you've done with the place. It looks spectacular. And let me also say grace and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. I bring you greetings on behalf of the 146th General Assembly. I was honored uh, to be elected moderator, and it was my great privilege to moderate the first virtual assembly. My son, when I first was elected moderator, uh, posted on Facebook saying I was the Presbyterian Pope. And I said, not quite. Uh, that's not quite how our system works. Uh, but other churches have bishops and archbishops and popes, but we have a moderator. And shortly after I called the assembly to order, I looked down the aisle from where I was seated, and next to me was your interim moderator, uh, the Reverend Stephen Kendall, who's helping you with the search for a minister here. And next to him was the deputy clerk, uh, Don Muir, and then Terry Lee as well. Just days before the assembly, all of us as Canadians heard the horrific news of the discovery of 215 unmarked graves of the former residential school in Kamloops, Alberta. And so it was my first task to lead the church in prayers of confession, repentance, lament, and silence. During the second day of the assembly, as we were meeting virtually across the country, a Muslim family was hit intentionally by a car in London, Ontario. Our guest at the assembly that day was the head of the Muslim Christian Association here in Canada as our interfaith observer. And we were able to hear from him, but also to pray for him 
and for his community. And many of you will heard, have heard that our assembly made decisions related to marriage and ordination, things that the church has been wrestling through for the past 25 years. It also heard tremendous concern from Korean Presbyterians, and a special committee was named by the church to listen to our two presbyteries, Hanka West and Hanka East, and I asked to be named to that committee. Moderator has two tasks, really, kind of like in the government of Canada. Uh, there's the speaker, the speaker that regulates the debate in the House of Commons or over at Queen's Park. And it was my privilege to be the moderator to keep left and right separated. It was also uh, the other aspect of the life of the moderator is to represent the church kind of, kind of, like the governor general, and to be involved in ceremonial functions and to uh, preach and visit across the country. Obviously, during COVID, that's been difficult. My first trip was to Prince Edward Island in September uh, to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the Presbytery of PEI. And as I was led in the procession into Zion Church in Charlottetown uh, with the Lieutenant Governor, with the Mayor, with the members of Presbytery. I stood on the platform, and it was the first time I'd been in a church in almost 16 months that was packed. And nobody was wearing a mask. I felt somewhat overdressed wearing a mask. And then the organ played the opening introduction to a great hymn of the faith, and a choir stood all around me. And I wanted to turn and say, don't you know we're not allowed to sing in public? This is dangerous for all of us. But as I heard the music, it was overwhelming to be part of a church community. In the days that Jesus lived here on earth, there were public health restrictions as well. And nothing troubled the religious leaders of Israel more than being ceremonially unclean. And nothing made them more unclean than contact with unclean Gentiles. And so, in our reading for today from Mark, wasn't it read by Mark too? Anyway, uh, read for us. By Miles, sorry, I heard Mark somewhere in there. But Miles, thank you. Sorry to take your name inappropriately. In our reading for today that Miles read for us, uh, Jesus leaves kosher, public health restricted Israel to enter into Gentile territory. And while there, he helps a Gentile woman whose young daughter is overwhelmed by evil spirits. Was the woman unclean? 
Well, the Pharisees, if we read the bit before our reading for today, would have said, yes, she was. Uh, when they complained that Jesus' disciples ate with unwashed hands, uh, Jesus had taught that it's not unclean hands or unclean food going into a person's mouth or into uh, the food that they eat that makes a person unclean, but what comes out from within. As Jesus had said to the Pharisees, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony. And these are the things which make a person unclean. And by this standard, Jesus was saying, in effect, that the Pharisees, who were so into their ceremonial washings, were the ones that who were unclean, not not this Gentile woman. And so in Jesus' day for making this kind of point, the Pharisees hated him, were plotting to have him killed. While this woman demonstrated her clean status by her humility of faith in her confession of Jesus as Lord, and trusting in him that he would save her daughter. But there's a problem with this story. As exquisite a story as it is, it's a story that we read in Matthew's Gospel, a little bit longer version, and we read in Mark's Gospel, and Matthew, as you recall, is writing to Jewish Christians, and so he refers by implication to this woman as a Canaanite, the land that the children of Israel had conquered. Mark, writing to Romans, calls her a Gentile or a Greek speaker one who comes from the Roman province of Syria, Phoenicia, close to modern-day Lebanon, where I'm not complaining I was supposed to be today, except that COVID shut us all down. So the problem with this story, and the first one, why did Jesus refuse to speak to this Greek-speaking Syrophoenician Canaanite woman, at least initially. It seems contradictory to the whole point of the story. Matthew gives us more detail about how Jesus seemed to play hard to get, went into the house, isolated himself, didn't come out and talk to her, refused to talk to her. It's also, isn't it unusual behavior for Jesus? But Matthew doesn't explain Jesus' silence. Mark doesn't even give us a hint. 
And so we can imagine, we can imagine several reasons why Jesus may have refused to speak to her. Perhaps, as Jesus makes clear in his speech that Matthew records for us, he was not sent to the Gentiles. He wanted no dealings with this Gentile woman. As Matthew records, Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And indeed, Jesus' strategy for world evangelization seems to have emphasized to the Jew first, then also to the Greek, starting with these homogeneous unit principles, starting with people that are like us, Jews first. You'll be my witnesses, he then tells his disciples, in Jerusalem, Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And maybe, maybe that's why Jesus stayed silent, is because this wasn't what he was called to do. Or was it? And perhaps, perhaps Jesus wanted to test this woman, to test to see what kind of faith she might have as a Gentile. Uh, Jesus, like many would have known, here he was in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And he would have remembered, ah, this place when Elijah was the prophet. The word of God was taken from Israel and went down into this territory where Queen Jezebel had lived. She'd led her husband, King Ahab, to worship Canaanite gods. And maybe, maybe, maybe she's like Jezebel. Or is she more like the widow from Zarephath, who was commanded of God to make bread first for Elijah? And Elijah, who'd been already fed by unclean ravens in his country of Israel was now down in this region of Tyre and Sidon and he's going to be fed by this unclean woman from Zarephath. Maybe, maybe Jesus was trying to test, are you like Jezebel? Or are you more like the widow of Zarephath? Maybe perhaps Jesus wanted just to strengthen her faith. Uh, citizens of Tyre and Sidon, according to the Cultural Study Bible that the Presbyterian College has been focusing on in Montreal in their uh, series of talks on Thursday evening, Bible for Doubters. And in that study Bible, it hints that perhaps citizens of Tyre and Sidon were eating too much of the resources that were coming from the surrounding area and were even taking food from Judah. And perhaps, perhaps, Jesus was trying to test to see, are they willing to give up their bread? Or maybe. And this is what I think. I think what is going on is Jesus wanted to highlight what he was about to do. That is, he was to answer the prayer 
of this Gentile, Greek-speaking woman. She would have perhaps been ceremonially unclean in at least three ways, according to the story. A woman, a Greek-speaking woman, Goyim, and then from the Roman province of Syria, Phoenicia. And Jesus wanted to make sure that everybody got it. But it's not only Jesus' silence that seems to be a problem. It's also the words that he used when he spoke to this woman. His first words in Matthew's gospel, he adds a piece that Mark doesn't have. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he followed that politically incorrect statement with the explanation, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Feed first the children, i.e. the children of Israel. Then feed those dogs. Harsh words. How cruel. In that day, Jews were accustomed to speak of Gentile dogs or infidel dogs. A little bit later, Christian dogs. But the commentator, William Barclay, reminds us of two things, no doubt rightly. First, suggests Barclay, the tone and the look with which a thing is said makes all the difference. So, for example, my tone, my look can give you a clue. I could lean into the microphone and say very quietly, fire, fire. My tone and my look suggest there's no fire. But if I scream fire and start running down the central aisle towards Spadina, you'd get the idea, right, that there really was a fire. It's like the commercial where the tone and the voice, your dad made that. Your dad made that. Right, the tone, the look makes all the difference. Even a thing which is said hard can be said with a disarming smile. And we can be quite sure that on the face of Jesus was a smile. His compassion was in his eyes. And that robbed all of the words from any insult, any bitterness. And then second, Jesus didn't use, which he could have done, the common word for wild dogs that would roam around the city of Jerusalem and other places out in the street. But Jesus used another word, which referred to house dogs or small pets. And it was a clever, clever play on the dog idea. And it wouldn't have been lost on this woman. 
who immediately picked it up as an encouragement to her appeal. Years ago, my wife Kelly, who's here with me today, called me from the dog breeder where she was with our three children. And she said, your children, your children, have found an absolutely beautiful cockapoo. What should I do? And I said what any father maybe shouldn't have said. I said, you should come home. So she came home. Kids are grumpy. The meal was set. The youngest child, who was not born when we lived here in this community, the other two were, the youngest child who's watching on streaming this morning, so she'll hear this story. It was her turn to say grace. And that little voice, now I can hear her little, my granddaughter saying it the same kind of way, but it was her turn to say grace. And she said, dear God, I thank you for daddy. I love daddy. And please help him to change his mind about the dog. Amen. Boy, this is... <laughs> now, not wanting my child to go through life thinking that God does not answer prayer, I said to my wife after grace, maybe we should go back after supper and pick up that cockapoo, which we did. And when that dog came into the family, changed everything, of course, there were rules. The dog was not allowed to be fed from the table. But the dog was smart. The kids, too, were smart. If they didn't like something, they'd flick it off the table for the dog to eat. And the dog was smart to know that in those high chairs you could collect little pieces of food that would be very, very enjoyable. See, Jesus, Jesus picked that kind of a dog, a household pet, rather than the wild feral dogs that roamed the streets searching like scavengers. But still, Jesus did use the word dogs to refer to this woman. And it's not terribly nice even to be called a household pet. So the only reason that I can see for Jesus' harsh language is that Jesus wanted to emphasize her Greek-speaking Syrophoenician Gentile status. She was, as Paul would later write to the church in Ephesus, she was excluded from citizenship in Israel, a foreigner to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Yet it's this woman who has faith, 
She believed in Jesus. She was helped by Jesus. And the story teaches us that if she, a Syrophoenician woman, Gentile, Greek-speaking Canaanite, found grace, there's hope for me as a Gentile. There's hope for you. And whoever you are, however hopeless your situation may be, whatever demons, as we often say, that you're dealing with, and how hopeless you feel your cause might be, instead of turning from Jesus, turn to Jesus, as this Gentile woman did. And the story says that Jesus helped the woman in response to her great faith. And Jesus healed her daughter. So what we want to ask next is what made this Gentile, Greek-speaking, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman's faith so great? What were the characteristics of her faith? The greatness of her faith is certainly an important emphasis since when she speaks in our reading, she recalls Jesus Lord. Only once in Mark's gospel, in Matthew, she, every time she speaks, three times, she calls Jesus Lord. The woman knew who Jesus was. She believed that Jesus could help her. She placed her confidence in the confidence of her daughter in Jesus. And if you want to be helped by Jesus, you have to put your faith in him too. No one else can really help you. And then secondly, she appealed to Jesus solely on the basis of mercy. She cried as she did in Matthew's gospel, Lord, Son of David, a very Matthew title for Jesus, have mercy on me. And later when Jesus spoke about the Gentile dogs, she gave an even stronger, quick-witted proof of her awareness that she had no claim to be agreeing with Jesus' statements. But she knew This is how everyone must come to Jesus asking for mercy. Laying aside all of our accomplishments, all of our self-righteousness, making no claim to entitlement, making no demands. I guess the question is, are you willing to come on that basis? It's the only way that you'll receive a positive answer from Jesus. Since, as Paul told the Ephesians, as you know, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works. So none of us can boast. And then she was persistent, like the persistent widow widow with the judge in another parable of our Lord. She would not allow herself to be easily turned away. She wouldn't take no for an answer. The story says she kept on crying out to him. And she came and she knelt before him. And even after Jesus told her 
and called about and spoke about her as a Gentile dog, she still persisted and said, yes, 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 I get it. But just give me a crumb, just give me a taste, just give me a bit. It's all I need. And then Jesus heals her daughter. It's one of the occasions where Jesus heals from a distance. He doesn't go to the daughter, doesn't leave where he is. It's not like the next healing we read about in Mark, where he leaves Tyre and Sidon. He goes into the Decapolis along the Sea of Galilee, and he heals someone by touching their ears, by spitting and touching their tongue. But this time he just speaks, and the young girl is healed because of her mother's great faith. And that's the nature of all true faith. It was the faith of the person who came upon the pearl of great price, the person who found the treasure in the field. They did everything in their power to possess those treasures. And it's the faith of the forceful ones who lay hold of the kingdom of God and will not turn aside. Matthew says this woman's faith was great, great faith. And may we follow and be like her. Let us pray. Our God, you give us in this this exquisite little story an example for those of us who are outsiders, Gentile by birth, an example of how your goodness is available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And for that, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. I understand I'm to lead you in a second or two of reflection, and I'll read three questions that you might think about. What do you make, what do you make of the difference in the interaction Jesus had and has with the Pharisees earlier in Mark 7? And then this gentle, Gentile woman from Syrian Phoenicia. Or at first blush, it appears as if Jesus gave the woman the silent treatment and then seems to call her a derogatory name. What do you think is really happening? Then what's this encounter between Jesus and the woman tell us about faith.